Good morning. Uh, this morning's scripture reading is from Mark, uh, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, if you'd like to read along with me. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's things that are Caesar's, and render things to God that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we come back together this morning, as again, as I said, so glad you're here as we jump back into the, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so glad you're here to worship at Bethany Church. Bethany Church is a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, Christ-loving local body that is committed to our mission of helping people follow Jesus. So whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus, a new believer, or today you're just checking it out, uh, or Jesus even out, we are glad you're here. We want to be a church home for uh, everyone. Well, this Sunday, we get to look at the second of five interchanges in Mark 12 between Jesus and his opponents. We are going to examine and look at probably the most profound uh, and influential political statement maybe ever said in the history of the world. Much of Western civilization, I would say, has even been built upon these words as Jesus challenges all of us today and challenged me this week in preparation with his call for Christians to obey both the state, the government, and God. But what do we do if they conflict? It's a question maybe you've thought about. It's a question maybe you've asked. Where does our ultimate allegiance lie to Christ our King or Caesar and the state? It's a question that every generation of Christians has to grapple with. We have to wrestle with this. And especially in our time, as even as I prayed this morning already, we are living in an absolutely politically hypercharged, you could almost say nuclear age of politics. Everything's become politicized, hasn't it? From what shows you watch to which channel you watch to which razor you use, uh, if you saw some commercials, everything's politicized. Everything is. And when a culture abandons a theistic worldview, what fills the vacuum? What fills the vacuum? What's the power and ultimate authority that maybe our secular culture is finding their ultimate identity in? The state, you might say. And when I say state today, this morning, I mean government on all levels. So I'll use that term state. I mean the government on all levels. And and add to that... The cultural capital that used to be associated with being a Christian 
uh, was respected maybe in the culture, is rapidly disappearing. Have you noticed? And even a stigma of bigotry is being increasingly applied to Christians. This is a relevant question for us today. A hard question, (laughs) which means I'll probably say something today that may offend every one of us in here at some point. So I'm just going to say that now and get it out there. I encourage you if that happens. I encourage you if that happens to not let your first instinct be, although probably mine too, how could he say that? He must be wrong. Or, or, or jump to assumptions even about my love of our country. I love our nation. Let your first instinct, as mine had to be this week too, to examine your own heart first. If something kind of rubs you the wrong way, do that for me. Go there first. So this morning we're going to look at the trap, then the question, and then Jesus' answer we're going to look at. The trap, the question, and Jesus' answer. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. Have your Bible open to Mark 12. Hopefully you've got it. We've got some fill-ins there for those of you that love to write in and, and jot down notes as we all learn kind of different ways. We're going to look at first the trap. Here it is. The bipartisan trap is set to destroy Jesus' credibility in Mark 12. If we ever, if we ever again see Democrats and Republicans coming together in a bipartisan way on anything, you know it's either something they all really love or really hate. If we ever see that again. Well, today we have two really strange bedfellows coming together. Two really strange groups, a bipartisan mix, you'd call it, of the Pharisees on one hand, and the Herodians on the other, coming together to trap Jesus, verse 13 says. Look at it with me again. Of chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. To trap him. So who are these two groups, and why did they come together at this time? Well, the Pharisees would have been of their day, uh, maybe you might, the right-wing conservative Jews of their day. They were nationalistic in their fervor. Uh, They would be the ones who were chafing more under that Roman occupation. Remember now? God's land is occupied. That would have been the Pharisees on the one hand. And understand the other group, the Herodians, you have to remember, as we said, uh, Judea, the area of, of God's people, became occupied in AD 6. It was a province of Roman rule. And so on the other side, we have the Herodians. Remember, God's land is occupied by Romans. The Herodians, they would have been more the ones who, they kind of accommodated Rome. So Pharisees here, and then we've got the Herodians. Uh, They accommodated to Roman rule to gain uh, political power. And they hated Jesus because he was messing up their political pursuit and greed of power. Pharisees were more nationalistic, maybe more right-wing. Jesus brings them all together. It's lovely, isn't it? He brings them all together. The verse says their goal is to trap him in his talk. To trap him. It's a term used for uh, hunting a prey, hunting or fishing a prey, actually. This term trapping. They want to take him, catch him, string him up, and gut him. That's what this word is. And their question when they come to him, it, it excuse me, drips with hypocrisy. This bipartisan trap. Here's our, here's our question. The hypocritical question was crafted to be un, 
unanswerable. The question they raised to him. Now with this context in mind, these two polar opposites coming together to trap him, uh, listen to the words again in verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? There, there's a, there's a, a, a hypocritical, uh, insincere attempt uh, uh, to flatter Jesus here. Flattery. You know the drill when somebody comes to you and just leads in the conversation with these gushing flattery. Wh- where does your mind go? What do they want? <laughs> what do they want? What are they trying to get? When somebody leads with flattery like that, Proverbs even speaks of beware of flattery. What's interesting, though, is these two opposite parties come together and they seek to flatter Jesus and, uh, and trap him. There's actually quite a bit of truth in what they say. It's actually really truthful. They call him the respectful title of teacher. They say to him, we, we know you speak the truth, yet in a matter of days, what will they be yelling? Crucify him for blaspheming, lying about God. Well, we know opinions don't matter to you necessarily, the opinions of, of men. True to as well. So tell us, is it right, Jesus, as God's chosen people to pay taxes to the occupiers, to Roman foreigners who live in God's land, to, to pay their pagan ruler, Caesar? Tell us, we really want to know. You set you getting the flattery and, the, and just the hypocrisy of that question and the attempt to trap him? What a loaded question. It's like being asked, have you started paying your taxes again? If you say no, you're guilty, right? If you say yes, you've admitted that you're also guilty. It's a loaded question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he says yes, the Pharisees have got him. See, he's not faithful to God. The people will turn on him. They know it. If he says no, the Herodians and the Romans will destroy him because he's in insurrection. They would allow for some religious freedom, but political, no. And he can't stay silent. That's not an option either. He's standing in the temple and everybody's around him. The tension is thick. I can actually feel it in the room this morning. There's a little, there's a little angst out there. It's okay. Everybody take a breath. Ah. <sighs> It's okay to talk about faith in the state. We have to. We can't just walk blindly. God has a word for us today on it. The tension's thick. The stakes are high. The audience waits with bated breath. Let's look at Jesus' piercing answer because in doing so, he's going to clarify a lot for us. The piercing answer clarifies the relationship between the church and state for us. And I hope it does that for us this morning. Jesus' answer, it's all in his answer. Let's look at verses 15 and 16 with me this morning again. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. 
And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus instantly exposes their hearts, as he so often does with us. He instantly exposes their hearts when he says, Why do you test me? I know your heart. I know you don't really want an answer. You want to trap me. This, this testing that Jesus said, it's the same word that was used when Satan tested Jesus. There's some maybe even here demonic intent to destroy what God is doing with a test, an underlying evil in their hearts that seeks the downfall of the king. So he asked for a denarius, a coin. And it's funny, they're so concerned with Jesus' loyalty to God and not Rome, but where does the coin come from? Their pockets. <laughs> they get it out of their pockets for him. They're the ones that have it, not him. It was a coin that was used as denarius to pay the tax that was really just the tax for being allowed to exist under Roman rule. The coin looked like this. Just actually just like this. I think it's one from the era, actually. On the one side, over here, you get the image of Tiberius Caesar. And at that time, on that side there, it says this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. You see the irony? They hand to Jesus, the son of God, a coin with a picture of a man on it that says, this is the son of God, divine Caesar. It just drips with irony. They hand him this coin that says the Son of God on it to the Son of the real actual Son of God. And Jesus responds to them, Well, whose who's, who's image is this? Who's on this coin? And they have to say, Well, Caesar's. Caesar's is on it. And he says, Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If his image is on it, rend to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It brings us to our first kind of application point of this whole, this whole phrase of Jesus is give to each what they rightly deserve. Give to each what they rightly deserve. We're going to unpack this more and more for a few minutes, but you and I are to give each to both the state and God what they rightly deserve. In the ancient world, coins were actually considered uh, the, the property of the person whose picture was on the coin. And so Caesar's picture is on the coin. It's technically his coin. And as Jesus says this, they, he leaves them speechless. They marvel at him as he seems to say to them, you have no problem carrying the coin. Where did it come from? Remember, their pockets. You have no problem even carrying it in God's space, the temple. It has his image on it. You do business with it, so pay taxes with it to him. Essentially saying, it's his coin, his image on Let Cedar have his idols. It's his. But this isn't a blank check for Caesar. It's not a blank check for Caesar as Jesus balances this out. Render to God the things that are God's. So while Caesar's image may be on that coin, and it is his, so you should pay him what you owe, Caesar himself... And the crowd in front of Jesus and you and I today have God's image stamped on us. We have God's image stamped on us. 
We're from God's mint, in other words. I love, uh, I, I love books. I love giving them away. I love reading them. I, we've got more resources out there for you today. I like making books available. And because I love books, I, 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 I want to make sure I know which ones are mine. You know, it's really sad. But I had this little thing. It's, uh, I meant to bring it in here today. I forgot. It's in my office. But a little press that I press on my book pages. It's so nerdy. I know. But here's the picture of what it looks like. You can kind of see it. Yeah, so that's on most of my books. Because uh, I, I, lo- I love them. I love my books. I want to keep track of them. I want to know, know which ones are mine. Who else? Anybody else do this? They, do, like, they write their name in their book. Nobody? Okay, okay. Thank you. I'm not alone. All right. When I loan them out, I have a spreadsheet, too. That kind of... <laughs> it's nerdy, I know. But every time I get a new book, I like to take out that press, and you see it actually presses in the paper. It presses an image on that paper. It's got my name, full name up there, so don't use it. Um, But it's there. But I know it's mine. I press the image on the page. It's there. God has pressed his image on you. You are his. You're his. He's pressed his image upon you. And so that means we owe himself our whole selves. His image is on you. Jesus makes a claim here to God's total ownership of you. We are God's coin. You're from his mint. As Caesar's face was on that coin, God's image is on you. It means when you come to him and trust him as well, he seals you with a sign, his Holy Spirit. You are his. He stamps it upon you. That's a good thing. It also means the more you grow with him and deeper in relationship, that it will be impressed and burned even more and deeper on you as you are conformed to his likeness too. You'll become like him in obedience. Even obedience to the government. But it also means earthly power, if we are truly made in God's image, it also means earthly power is not absolute. It's not an absolute power. So while we're called to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's, Caesar's power is not absolute. And it's actually only in place because of God. Let's take a look. The state has been instituted and appointed by God, so we must obey. It's been put there by him. Did you know that? That the state, the government, it's God's sphere. It's his. He ordained it. He he created it. And, And he even gave it its rightful role. And actually, he's done that with all the different spheres of the world. Take a look at this. So it's a little uh, blurry. I couldn't find a better image, but uh, it, it lists there for us just kind of the different spheres of life, different places you live, different pla- places you interact. We've got marriage. We've got family. We've got education. We've got work life. We've got state. We've got government there. We've got church. All of these are actually God's. They're all his. And he's the one who's designed them. He's the one that set them up. He's the one that prescribes the norms for how they'll work and flourish. They're all his, as he did with marriage, as he did with the family, as he's done with uh, economic or or work life you see up there. 
the state and the church realm, they're all God's spheres and he's sovereign over them. And so he's the one that decides the responsibilities of each of those. And the laws and norms upon which they'll flourish best. Which is why, which is why when these spheres mix too much, it causes problems, doesn't it? When the government tries to play family, they usually don't do a very good job, do they? They were not designed necessarily to be the primary ones. It doesn't necessarily work. That's why when the church tries to do the role of government sphere, and it's happened throughout history, does it go very well? You know, it does not go very well if you know your history books at all even. That's why we don't run a family like a business. They just don't work that way. Now, of course, we can choose to run each of these how we want, according to God's design and his wisdom. And if we do, they'll flourish. Or we can choose to run each of these our own way, and they may fall into ruin. But Jesus is recognizing the legitimacy of human government here. Yet he's not saying it's Caesar's thing. He has control of it. That's, that's a totally a world that God stays out of. God's only concerned with the church. That's his. No, they're all his. Whether we acknowledge it or not, they're all his. So too it means we must obey then. By disobeying the government, you disobey God's appointed leaders. Do you know that? You disobey God's appointed leaders. Doesn't mean you have to like them. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Doesn't mean you, you can't even critique them. You can. Or criticize or vote for change. We live in a democratic republic. All of that is good and to do if you feel so led. But it does mean you must pay taxes and not speed. We must obey the laws from taxes down to the speed limit. They're put there by our government. Obey from the national all the way down to our local, local Cambia officials. And just so you know and think I'm, I'm not making this up, take a look at Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. There it is. It's his. And those that have exist have been instituted by God. There it is. It's his. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Who was Caesar when Paul wrote this? Nero. Nero, the great persecutor of Christians. We are called to obey those whom God has instituted. It also means if this is his sphere, government, it also means that a Christian career in politics is permissible and maybe even a good idea if somebody feels called to that. And actually, if it's God's design, we need to be involved. If God's instituted government to choose us to totally disengage, it's not very responsible as a Christian citizen. We need to engage. We need to influence all of those things. Live your faith, I would say, in the public square, out in your life. In fact, I would say you have to. You have to live your Christian convictions in the public square. Make good arguments for God's wisdom, even as policy comes forth. 
as you vote or you discuss over the fence with your neighbors. We have to do that. I've heard some people say, even as, as Christians move their convictions into the public sphere or their views on a certain moral issue, don't try and legislate your morality. Have you ever heard that one? Don't try and legislate your, your morality. I want you to think about that. To respond to that, we could say, all laws are legislating somebody's morality. Think about that. All laws are legislating someone's morality. The question is just whose? That's the question. However, when we think about that and, and even the rightful call, if it's God's work, sphere of government to be involved, to, to be active, to be a voice, to live your life in the public square, God, Jesus doesn't envision that the church will become a political organization. He doesn't envision that. Uh, a political organization maybe uh, of power and, and of might. I was reading a commentator this week, David Garland. He said it well. Jesus does not envision that his followers will become the church militant and all-powerful. The church of, of glory and power always loses its moral compass and its spiritual vigor. We can't imbue the world with Christ's spirit by exercising political force. It doesn't work. So yes, be engaged politically. Live your faith in the public square. Run for office even, but don't believe in attempts to convert the nation through the government or laws. It's a mirage. And the church has, over time, compromised too much, even in our lifetimes, with too many blind alliances and, and silence even when we should speak out. A law has never changed anyone's heart. They're good. They restrain evil. It's a form of, you know, behavior modification. It does do that. That's good. It means you and I can walk down the street and can be almost any time of day and feel relatively safe. They're good. But a law, politician, a political party has never changed anyone's heart. That's always been the spirit working through the church. That's how. The Spirit working through the church, his people. Even as uh, hundreds of years ago, Martin Luther said something similar. Take a look. One of the great uh, church fathers of the Reformation. He said, The church of the New Testament did not attempt to save its existence by making a compromise with Nero. They could have. Or by stirring up a revolution against tyrants. Or by making an alliance with the Persian Empire. No. But by simply confessing the truth of the gospel and building up a truly confessing church whose members were prepared to die for their faith. That's how hearts are changed. That's how. It would have been so tempting early on to go, you know what, let's throw this thing away and line, align ourselves with Nero. He's killing us anyways. No, they didn't do that. That's our primary calling. That is our primary role. And it's in that pursuit of, of confessing the gospel, of growing in the gospel, of growing believers that are even maybe even prepared to live and even die for it, that we must acknowledge that while we're called to, 
live out our faith boldly in public, in politics and obedience to the state, there are limits. There are limits. And that's a good thing. Let's take a look at them. Jesus limits what one owes the state. Jesus limits what one owes the state. So even if the government's been put in place by God, it's there, we are called to obey. Jesus limits what one owes the state. Remember, as humans, you first bear what? The image of God. You first and foremost bear that. He stamped that image upon you way before you've ever had a political affiliation. The image of God is on you. He stamped it upon you. Even before, even before your uh, national image, your patriotism, the image of God is stamped on you. All of those. You bear the image of God. You belong to him, heart, soul, mind, and strength, all your life and how you live now. So every time that you and I then, that means, we enter one of those different spheres, work life, family, marriage, state, uh, what was another one? Yeah, education, all those different. When, when we enter all those different spheres, or leisure, you might even add to that, or hobbies, Every time you do that, you enter as an image bearer. You don't check it at the door. You enter as an image bearer of God. And if you're a follower of Christ, you enter as a, a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't, it means we can't compartmentalize our faith. If, if faith is just a Sunday morning thing and everywhere else we kind of just try to just totally disappear and blend in, we can't do that. Our greater duty is obedience to God in all areas of life. And that's what limits what one owes the state. It means the state doesn't have absolute authority. They never have. They never will. They may think they do, but they don't. Authority over you. Uh, and civil disobedience is even allowable and probably necessary in some circumstances Wayne Grudem put a simple definition of this. I liked it, so we're going to look at it. God requires his people to disobey the civil government if obedience would mean disobeying God. It's a real simple way to think about it. If obeying the, the, the civil government means you have to disobey God, then it's okay to disobey the government. Think uh, Daniel in Babylon. Gets thrown in a lion's den, doesn't he? Or also those other three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? They're all, they all are, are choosing to obey God over man. The classic example from the New Testament is Peter. The Apostle Peter, when the Sanhedrin, remember they come to the apostles and they say, you got to stop teaching in that name. You got to stop. You just have to, you know, it's causing too much trouble. The insurrection, you're, you're, you're inciting the people. Stop talking about Jesus. And what does Peter say? We must obey God rather than men. And so he goes and they still teach in the name. And Peter dies for it someday. If asked to ever violate a command of God, do something immoral, or violate your conscience even, you must disobey the government. You must. So we absolutely stand, as we talked about sanctity of life last week, and this month highlights that across our nation. We absolutely must stand against heinous abortion laws that New York put forward this week again, our own state, or the law of the land, Roe v. Wade, we have to. 
How can we not? How can you divide that and, and live your discipleship here and you get go out in the public square and, and, and leave it the baggage behind? We have to. You see, God wants all of you. His image is stamped on you. You take that everywhere you go, that image. It's the reason religious freedom protection is so important. No one should be coerced to violate their conscience, whether they're Christian, Muslim, or Buddhist. No one should. It's the reason the Kleins of sweet cakes uh, by Melissa here in Gresham, actually, it's going to the Supreme Court potentially, resisted baking a cake, or florists who were in trouble, or the fire chief of Atlanta who lost his job a couple years ago. Conscience issues. And more and more, these incidents are popping up. I encourage you this week, uh, Google search um, religious liberty cases 2018 and just look at a couple. <laughs> just look at a couple and see what's taking place in our culture. Christians are going to have to really think through. You're going to have to. How we handle increasing state-sanctioned opposition that's coming more and more to Christians. We're going to have to. The landscape has changed dramatically in the last 10 years, the last five minutes, actually. The last five minutes, I would even say. It's changed dramatically. It's becoming increasingly clear that American culture and the state doesn't just maybe reject the particulars of Christianity, but also it's Morality and values. So what's the way forward? What's the way forward? What do we do if our state government continues to go a certain way and become even more hostile to your Christian faith and what we believe, and what the Bible says? What do we do? Here's a, here it is. The way forward is trusting less in the might a moral majority, and more in a creative embracing of our call, your call to be a prophetic minority. It's changing. It already has changed. In the 70s and 80s, it was a concerted effort through might, power, money, political action committees that, that, that did wed the church and state too closely. And that was possible at that time because at that point in our history, uh, most Americans identified with the goods of Christianity. They just did. Most Americans identified with the goods of Christianity. Like going to church. That was thought as a good thing, you know. An insurance agent would let people know, I go to church. Why? It was seen as positive. It was good for business. Or another one, just being a moral good person. Most Americans identified with those things. But really, it was always the Christian values that were more popular than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be honest. The values and the goods of Christianity were always more popular than saying to people, you're a sinner who needs a savior. It was always more popular. You know the phrase, we have been called at times even a Christian nation. Now on the one hand, Many of our followers, our founders, were Christian. The early settlers, they sought religious freedom. 
And Christianity and the church has been so influential in the founding of this nation. It has been. And all across our founding documents, you cannot get away from it, and I hope we don't. Ideas like freedom of religion. This would never come without the Bible and Christianity. Individual rights that are so championed today. My rights, my rights, my rights. That never would have happened without a biblical worldview. Human rights, equality before the law, the separation of church and state in a good way, those are all things that we never would have got without a biblical worldview. We have to acknowledge that. So in that sense, yes, a Christian nation. In that sense. And we should be immensely grateful for that. We should be unashamed of that. And if you feel like being patriotic for that, you should be. Hear that, please. You have to hear that. But the morality of Christianity doesn't make you a Christian. Let me say that again. The morality of Christianity doesn't make you a Christian. Only faith in Christ and redemption from our sins makes us a Christian. That's all. So what's the way forward? We are at a really critical stage, the church is. There's books being written by, uh, about this a ton. I got a few of them out there today if you want to read some. What's the way forward? A lot of Christians are looking. What's the way forward? Things have changed so much. I love this quote from Russell Moore. His book Onward is out there if you want to grab it. In fact, his prophetic minority, that's a phrase from him even I took from him. He says, here's the alternative, and we see this, what's happening Many will find, the alternative many will find is sort of a siege mentality. Some will retain the illusion of a previously Christian America and grow all the angrier, thinking we've lost something that rightly belonged to us. Others will simply absorb into the larger culture and their secular lives while carrying out countercultures in their churches to hold fast to the gospel. I would argue, he says, that the cultural tumult, the upheaval, he says, around us is no cause for either clenching fists or wringing hands. He says we ought to see the ongoing cultural shakeup in America as a liberation of sorts, actually, from a captivity we never knew we were in. It's shaking things up. It is. It is shaking things up in the church. It's shaking up our culture. What's he saying? He's saying maybe the church was riding on the coattails of an illusion of a Christian America. That's heavy, I know. It's hard for me to hear and think about and read myself this week. But guess what? Maybe we're waking up. The church national is waking up from a slumber we never knew we were in. And it's actually going to be an opportunity. An opportunity. He calls it a liberation, even. Now it's actually an opportunity to, to stand out because we are going to stand out more and more whether we want to or not as a prophetic minority now. So don't get angry don't wring your hands. Don't be hopeless. Don't think it's all lost. It's not. We have the gospel. We have the good news of Jesus Christ. We have it. You have it if you trusted Christ today. Don't throw in the towel, it means. Stand out. It's our call to stand out with the gospel front and center as a church. 
This is who we are. This is what we're about. Yes, politics are from God. Yes, there's good in them. Yes, be involved. But this is what we're about. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And live it out even if it starts costing us because it's going to. It's going to start costing us more and more. Render under God the things that are God's. We have the gospel. We have the very thing that the culture needs that can actually make a difference from the inside out. Not as laws do from the outside in. Inside out. But we better be ready. We better be sure that we have the gospel right. We better know that the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will never betray us. It's the only kingdom that will never betray you. It's God's kingdom, his authority, his ruling of your life. And actually the best way to be an American citizen is to be a Christian citizen first. You'll actually be a better American citizen in the long run if your Christianity, if the gospel is the first for you. That's the way forward. Things have changed. It's good to see that. But hear this today. It's an opportunity. We are going to stand out more and more. Let's take the gospel forward as we do it. Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Let's pray. Lord, a lot in this message today. A lot for us to think through, a lot for us to wrestle with. And I just acknowledge up front, it's okay to wrestle with this. We have to. The taboo in our culture to not talk about religion or, or, or politics is actually unhealthy. We have the truth. We can handle hard conversations and do it in loving grace and mercy. And even today as we come to this, I'm sure it's challenged as it did for me some of my own thoughts this week. What's our way forward? Help us be good citizens that even love our, our nation and, and respect offices and, and those you've put in power. But let us do so as first and foremost citizens of your kingdom. Each and every one of us is going to be applied different to every heart in here today. So, Lord, that's only a work you can do. So, Spirit, do it, we ask. And may Bethany Church be known in this community from this day forward as it has in the past even and forevermore as a gospel-believing, promoting, Christ-exalting church. It's in his name we pray, the ultimate king. Amen.